A reading from the book of Deuteronomy. Moses spoke to all the people, saying, A prophet like me will the Lord your God raise up for you from among his own kin. To him you shall listen. This is exactly what you requested of the Lord your God at Horeb. On the day of the assembly, when you said, Let us not again hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire any more, lest we die. And the Lord said to me, This was well said. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their kin, and will put my words into his mouth. He shall tell them all that I command him. Whoever will not listen to my words, which he speaks in my name, I myself will make him answer for it. But if a prophet presumes to speak in my name, an oracle that I have not commanded him to speak, or speaks in the name of other gods, he shall die. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. sing joyfully to the Lord. Let us acclaim the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us joyfully sing psalms to him. If today you hear his voice, harden not your Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord who made us. For he is our God, and we are the people he shepherds, the flock he guides. If today you hear his voice, harden not your Oh, that today you would hear his voice. Harden not your hearts as at Meribah, as in, as in the day of Massa in the desert, where your fathers tempted me. They tested me, though they had seen my works. If today you hear his voice, harden not your A reading from the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, I should like you to be free of anxieties. An unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But a married man is anxious about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and he is divided. 
an unmarried woman or a virgin is anxious about the things of the Lord so that she may be holy in both body and spirit. A married woman, on the other hand, is anxious about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I am telling this to you for your own benefit, not to impose a restraint upon you, but for the sake of propriety and adherence to the Lord without distraction. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. Then they came to Capernaum, and on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and taught. The people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. In their synagogue was a man with an unclean spirit. He cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him and said, Quiet, come out of him. The unclean spirit convulsed him and with a loud cry came out of him. All were amazed and asked one another, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. His fame spread everywhere throughout the whole region of Galilee. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I'd like to offer you this morning for reflection something that may have passed by you, which is understandable, this past week. Um, this past week, Pope Francis on Tuesday, January 22nd, um, he inaugurated and reminded us uh, that 
2025 is a holy year. And the idea of a holy year, referred to as a jubilee year, is something that extends deep into scriptures. It goes all the way back to the book of Leviticus, in which every seven years, the people of God were called together, and all the debts that one owed were forgiven. Slaves were set free, and the land that had been appropriated from other people was returned to them. It was a sign of God's, number one, ownership. We don't really own anything. I own this, I own that. No, no, no you don't. None of us do. We're stewards and caretakers. The ultimate ownership of all that is is the creator of heaven and earth, almighty God. And it's entrusted to us for our well-being. Not simply individually or privately, but also has an opportunity to reflect once again the graciousness of God to us, beginning with our very existence. None of us calls ourselves into existence. Life from its very beginning is a gift. It's a gift to be given and not simply to be held on to privately. And so it was also a reflection of God's graciousness to us by also forgiving the debts of others who may be heavy burdened with debt. And anyone who walks around with plastic money today understands that. And so it was a reflection of that. Now this kind of went back and forth and it was really in the 13th century that Pope Benefice once again reinstituted this every seven years. Again, it kind of fell out of favor, kind of was picked up, let go. And it wasn't really until St. Pope John Paul II, back in the early 1980s, that once again reinstituted that, a practice that had been started or restarted by Pius back in the late 1940s, early 50s, that every 25 years there would be one. Well, and that has been followed through by Pope John Paul, Pope Benedict, and now Pope Francis. And this year's theme, or next year's theme, 2025, is the Jubilee year a time for hope. But what Pope Francis has done and concerns us more immediately is that this year, this year, 24 leading to 25, on the, the Jubilee year begins on January the 6th of 2025. He's designated it as a year of prayer, a year of prayer in preparation for the Jubilee year. And I'd like to reflect with you for just a moment because at first blush, 
we can almost see the eyes rolling, the head going back, and the kind of mental, you know, the thing that we use to change the channels when we're disinterested or lose interest in a channel. Prayer. Oh, oh Lord, here we go. Heard it, been there, done that, prayed it all my life. Oh, I've been there. Oh, God. How long is he going to take to say it? So on and so forth like this. Well, the great Spanish-American philosopher George Santayana once said that when you lose sight of the goal, you double the effort. When you lose sight of the goal, you double the effort. And so the notion of prayer has about it almost a kind of threadbareness, doesn't it? It just doesn't grip anymore. The, the thing that you've been turning and all the threads, they just no longer grab. So prayer, and then there's a kind of collective yawn, and we kind of go on. And yet the foundation of our life as human beings, much less as Christians, is prayer. You know, it's interesting. If you spend a few moments looking at the history of humankind, especially paleontology and archaeology. And you see the very origins of human beings. There is a consistent thread that runs from the very beginning of any recordings that we have of human beings down to the present day that human beings are religious people. Religion, the lifting up of one's being, even in the earliest part, the etchings on cave walls, the various artifacts that archaeologists dig up, give evidence that human beings prayed from the very beginning. From the very beginning, the acknowledgement that there was something greater something responsible for, and there was something greater than what it appeared to be, that what is had an origin in something beyond, and that human beings always from the beginning sought contact with that other beyond from the very beginning down to today. And so prayer is built into the very heart of what it means to be a human being. But that really should not surprise us, does it? Or it shouldn't. If we spend just a moment just opening for a first couple of pages the book of Genesis, we are made in the image and likeness of God. Well, if we are made by God and the very fingerprints in the hands of God are in our formation and that clay doesn't come alive until we have the very dabar Yahweh, the very life breath of God is breathed into it and then we have a human being. How could it be anything other than that? If we are made by God made for God, and God wants to be known 
and wants our love in return, we are fundamentally religious beings. And we fulfill an essential part of our humanity by prayer. Without prayer, we are impoverished. We shrivel up. We simply live for ourselves by ourselves. And at the end, all we have is ourselves. That's a sure subscription for a very miserable life and a very tragic end. If we do not have something beyond ourselves, but not only something beyond ourselves, we have someone beyond us, and yet who loved us so much, and we needed so much, that the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen His glory. We just did that a little over a month ago. We all gathered round cribs and all this kind of stuff. But do we recognize that it's the abiding love of God for us? And God passionately desires our response in a free return of love. God takes the initiative and reaches us and says, I love each and every one of you as if you are the only one, uniquely and particularly. We are not cookie cutters. We're not the result of some press, some Xerox machine. In other words, we're not robots. But in our freedom, our humanity takes on a particular personality, a particular characteristic, a particular mode of being in the world. But what all of us share is that we are in the image and likeness of God. And we are called to that divine destiny. How can we do anything else but pray? How can we do anything else but respond to the harsh, deepest longing? Because we are made for God. And our souls are restless until they rest in God. St. Augustine. And so there's been granted in the modern context, it, it, it's not simply with ourselves, you know, it's not simply an existential problem. Well, I've been there, I prayed, I go through it, you know, do all that sort of stuff, da 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 da. Uh, no, uh, there's been within the modern context, beginning since about significantly, since about the 18th century, what a cultural and intellectual movement called the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment at that time said that human beings have now reached an age or stage of evolution in which the most important thing is reason and freedom. Reason and freedom so that we can be all we can be. And one of the great movements that took place culturally and historically 
at that particular time was the idea of a philosophy and a religion called deism in which God was understood as a kind of watchmaker, clockmaker. And what did God do? God created everything, gave it its rules, regulations, all that sort of stuff, set the time, and then what happened? God said, see you all later, it's yours. Goodbye. In other words, God vacated the premises. And we're on our own. It depersonalized God. It was God without an incarnation. It was God without a human face. It was God without a crucifixion and a resurrection. And hence, we were left on our own more and more. And then, fast forward. This developed with the forces of secularity, of secularism that we have today. And in the 20th century, the 20th century, century ago, we see the effects of what came to be a secular, atheistic humanism in which God was not only absent, but God, either the concept or the reality of God, became the enemy of you and me because God was the great roadblock to our development and our fulfillment as human beings. Hence, the task of the modern person come of age in the 20th century and going forward is learning to stand on your own two feet and live without God. And if you can do that, you will be magnificently liberated, mature, and free, and nothing can stand in your way, and the religion of progress will full bloom. And how well did that work out in the 20th century? How well did that work out with the totalitarians that arose in the 20th century? With the enslavement? And it showed not man's humanity to man, but just how inhuman human beings could be one to the other. Dostoevsky, the great Russian writer of the, of the 19th and 20th century said, if God is dead, all things are possible. All things are permitted. If you get rid of God, if you have no transcendent law and moral basis other than my will, what I will, my autonomous private self, and I have no need to be answerable to anything beyond that. It is the strong survive and the weak die. And we saw that. We saw that in the fascism, the Nazism, the godless socialism of communism, and the millions and millions of people who died worshiping the God of the state, the God of the leader, the Führer, 
the emperor, the president, the chairman. And we saw that. That's how well that particular philosophy worked. That's not, that's not some right-wing conservative fantasy. That's the historical records of Dachau, Bugenwald, of the killing areas, of the gulags, of the death camps. That's the record when man decides there is nothing beyond myself and I do not need God. That's secularity. And we see it. And if we talk about finally the situation today, what today we find ourselves with is not so much an atheism, a secularism uh, that is of that variety, although it's there. It's there. It's there in Nicaragua. It's there in China. It's there in other parts of the world. But mainly in the West, what we contend with today is what is called a practical atheism. A practical atheism. What I mean by that is, if you ask somebody, do you believe in God? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I believe in God. Uh, what does it mean for your life? Well, I really don't know. I, I, I look, I got a business appointment at 2 o'clock. Can I, can I, I don't have time for on the phone. Bye. Boom. God is simply something that's a piece of the furniture that if you're kind of respectable, you want to say, well, yeah, yeah, I, be yeah I believe in that God stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. But it's a non-intrusive God. It's a non-present God. And we live our life as if God did not exist on a day-to-day -day basis. It's a practical atheism. And in that sense, it's more insidious because it gives the illusion that the God who created us and loves us loves us to the point of death and offers resurrection, and the God who wants us to be with him for all eternity is a God that really makes absolutely no difference in my daily life. Whether there was or there wasn't, it doesn't matter. Because I live my life as if there is no God. That's the atheism that is so prevalent today in our society. It's a kind of respectable one. Uh, we, we check another box. Believe in God, yeah. But then we go off and live as if God is non-existent. This is the situation we often find ourselves in today. And so when Pope Francis calls this coming year a year of prayer. It can easily be filed away as another one of those Vatican initiatives or another one of those church things. Yeah, okay, let's move on. Let's move on to something else. 
and so on. But that would be a tragedy because we would be impoverishing further a basic fundamental hunger and need that we have. The need to respond to God's initiative to love. Initiative for us to respond to the love that he has for us and reveals every day of our lives. Every day of our lives is a love letter from God, is a love initiative from God. Is prayer more challenging today than it has been 100 years ago, 500 years ago, several millennia ago? Yes, it is. It is. Because the cultural and historical context in which we find ourselves is more challenging. It's more demanding. There are more distractions, more allurements, more things to grab our attention. There's no question about it. Which means it's more necessary than ever that we not become overfed on the buffet of the world and undernourished on that which gives us not simply temporal life, but eternal life. Prayer is the necessity to play the long game and not simply the short game. I simply end and kind of conclude with this. Um, there's not too many things I know, but what I do know is what history teaches. And history teaches not only me, but it teaches us. That I know that a group of slaves, Hebrews, in Egypt, millennia ago, they prayed. I know that a group of Hebrews who became Israelites, they prayed wandering in the desert. I know that people prayed in the catacombs in first century Rome. I know that martyrs prayed in the circuses as entertainment before being fed to the lions. I know that people prayed before the Crusades. I also know that people prayed in Valley Forge in that Christmas night with General George Washington. I also know that they prayed at Andersonville and Charlottesville and Gettysburg. I know that they prayed. I know that they prayed in the terrible trenches of Verdun and Aragon and Avion. I know they play, prayed in the terrible jungles 
of the South Pacific in World War II and in the foxholes and the battlefields throughout Europe. I know that they prayed in Korea, cold and bitter winters of that conflict. I know that they prayed. I know that they prayed in the rice fields and paddies of Vietnam and Cambodia. They prayed on the flotillas leaving from Cuba to come to the United States. I know that they prayed and are praying now in the deserts of Afghanistan and other parts of the Middle East. They prayed. And I also know that 12 who knew Jesus intimately, the disciples, they said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And if in the midst of all that, they can ask to pray and do pray, can we in our own time of challenge do any less? Can we not as well ask the Lord to teach us to pray? Facing our own challenges, our own unique moments in history and culture when God continues to call us to return his love. And so I close by asking you this morning, let us be one with those disciples over 2,000 years ago who said to Jesus, teach us to pray, and let us please join together as we end with the words of Jesus to them and the words of Jesus to us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. If you please stand and let us join together with St. Joseph in our profession of faith.